0: I greet you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I bring greetings from the church up north in Marion, Indiana. If you would uh, turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, you can find that on page 913 of the chair Bibles if you uh, choose to use those. Acts chapter 5, we'll be reading from verses 12 through the end of the chapter. And we see in Acts here the beginning of, or rather the uh, expansion of the church, um, After the Lord's ascension, he sends out his apostles to serve as his witnesses, and we see them doing just that this evening. But even as they serve as witnesses, we also encounter opposition to the growing church. So with that in mind, please follow along with me as I read from God's holy, inerrant, inspired, infallible word. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 12 to the end of the chapter. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in a public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, and stand in the temple, and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And someone came and told them, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put them outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about four hundred, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, he will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's ask God's blessing upon the hearing and the preaching of his word. Lord, we do thank you that you have given us this great privilege of gathering together on this evening, on your day to hear your word preached. Lord, we pray that you would open up the hearts and the ears of your people to receive uh, this word. We pray that you would be with me, your jar of clay, that I would faithfully and accurately articulate your truths for your glory. We do pray all of this in your son's name. Amen. One of my favorite words, and I think we all have our own favorite words that we like, is the word oxymoron. Did you know what it means? It's this idea that two words that are contradictory to one another and are opposed to one another. So if I told you we have something like plastic silverware, that's an oxymoron. Or if I use the term jumbo shrimp, it's another oxymoron. Or perhaps a militant pacifist, it's another oxymoron. Well, here in this text, we are called to be oxymorons. We are called to be those who are worthy to suffer a dishonor. We are called to be those who are worthy to suffer a dishonor. And as we look at our text, we're going to see three different ways that we as God's people are to be worthy of suffering a dishonor. The first is we are worthy to suffer when we are a gathering people. The second is we are worthy to suffer when we obey God rather than man. And third, we are worthy to suffer when we boldly proclaim the truth. So we are worthy to suffer when we gather, obey, and proclaim. So first, being worthy to suffer when we gather. And we see that in verses 12 through 16. The text begins, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And if you were to look here in your text, you would see that this narrative immediately follows the account of Ananias and Sapphira. And you remember that account where God's people were gathered together. They shared everything in common with one another. And Ananias and Sapphira, seeing Barnabas set as an example of one who sold his field and gave everything that he had or everything that he had earned from that sale to the church, they wanted that same type of recognition. And so they sell their property, but they withhold uh, some of the earnings and they lie not to man, uh, but to God. And this picks up right where that left off, with the ministry of the apostles. They were continuing the ministry of healing of the sick and casting out demons. A ministry that began back in chapter 3, where Peter and John were going to the temple to pray. And you remember, they come across this lame beggar who had been lame since birth. He was over 40 years, and he asks for alms. And you remember the story, Peter and John say, We have no silver or gold, but what we do have, we give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And so this is what they continue to do. They continue to heal and cast out the sick. And what we're seeing here is, in a very real way, the 12 are continuing the ministry of Jesus before his crucifixion, his burial, resurrection, and ascension, continuing the ministry of Jesus, of healing the sick, and casting out the demons. And notice where this is taking place. The text tells us that this takes place at Solomon's portico. And this is where they went after they healed the, uh, blo- or the beggar there at the temple gates. As the people saw this man, they'd come into the temple every day. They'd seen this man walking, and so they followed him to see what happened to him. How was he healed? And he brings them to Peter and John. And so they're gathered there at Solomon's portico, and the word is preached. And we see that over 2,000 men were added to the number of believers. But also there, this is the first time that the Sadducees arrested Peter and John and charged them not to preach in the name of Jesus. And yet they're doing the exact thing that they were told not to do. They were not following this gag order that was put on them by men. And what's being displayed here for us is an unwavering commitment to gather with the people of God regardless of any opposing circumstances. They are gathered together and are preaching and teaching about the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The atoning work of Jesus Christ makes reconciliation with sinners and a holy God possible. And because of that reconciliation, God's people are able to gather together and to worship him. What we're seeing here is a visible representation of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. So listen to that as I read it for us. And let us consider how to stir one another up towards loving good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And this is what we're seeing. We're seeing the early church having an unwavering commitment for the gathering together of God's people for God's worship. The threats of those who killed Jesus could not stop them from worshiping the resurrected Jesus Christ. And we have to understand that there was a real possibility that as they gathered together for the worship of God, they could have been killed. They faced a death. Now, compare that with the commitment of the modern evangelical church here in America. And it would be easy for us maybe to cast stones or point fingers at those who have somewhat of a flexible commitment to the church. But rather than do that, I want to ask this what about your commitment? to the church? What about your commitment to the gathering of God's uh, people? Is the honoring of the Lord's Day replaced by distracting recreational activities? There's nothing wrong with recreation, but when it supersedes the Lord's Day gathering, we are perhaps guilty of violating the fourth uh, commandment. Or are you guilty of prioritizing sleep over the worship on the Lord's Day? Is your slothfully induced tardiness in worship a reflection of where your true commitment lies? Now, there are legitimate providential hindrances that would keep us from gathering together on the Lord's Day. But much of the time, our reason for missing a church is fueled by a selfish desire and not a holy hindrance. And perhaps, let me ask the question, perhaps one reason why we are not worthy to suffer a dishonor is because we do not honor the Lord's Day. Just as there were people who had... Uh, passing interest in Christianity, even today, there were people who had a passing interest in Christianity here in our text. We see in the text that none of the rest dared join them as they are gathered together for God's worship. Now, these are the people who are full of fear because of the death of Ananias and Sapphira. This is how verse 11 ends. That great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard it because of the death of Ananias and Sapphira. This was not a fear that leads to faith and repentance, but rather it is a fear that leads to a calcified and hardened heart. You contrast that with the boldness of the apostles here, and their fear of God cast out the fear of men. Despite the threats of the Sanhedrin, they continue to preach and teach the gospel. And look at the results as they preach and teach the gospel. More and more. Were added to the name. More and more believers were added to the church. At this point, Luke stops keeping track of how many people had been converted. We begin the book of Acts, and we have the 12 there gathered with Jesus before his ascension. Then they go and they gather in the upper room, and we're told that a number of 120... Then Pentecost, and the Lord brings in some 5,000 men. Then when they preach in the Solomon's portico for the first time, 2,000 more are added. And here, there's so many people that are being added to Christianity that Luke just cannot keep track. And we see that one of the ways, one of the means, rather, that the Lord uses to bring his people to himself was the boldness of the apostles. The Lord was using their bold preaching to bring his sheep into his fold. It was through the preaching and the healing and the character that the people held the apostles in high esteem. So much so that the text tells us they even carried those who were sick and they placed them on mats and cots so that as Peter walked by and the sun came down upon him, perhaps his shadow might cross over those who are sick. Now, there's no evidence that the uh, casting of Peter's shadow was efficacious to bring about healing, but what is true is that the Lord was working so powerfully in the apostles that the people were doing everything they could to experience the opportunity to see Jesus' healing power and experience a Jesus' power. And not just those in Jerusalem. The text tells us that all of those who are around Jerusalem, the towns and the cities, heard about the work of the apostles. And so they brought the afflicted and the unclean to them. Now in Acts 4 as they are praying for boldness after the healing of this beggar that they met at the temple gate, and after they had first been charged not to teach in Jesus' name, they're praying for boldness, and they recognize that it was the hand of Jesus who cast his hand down to pull this lame beggar up, and it is the hand of Jesus who heals these people here. And the Lord was using his apostles as his own hands. And we see, as Calvin says, miracles are the handmaids of faith. These people are not just being healed. They're not just having demons cast out of them. They are being brought from death and into light. We're seeing a mass conversion of children of wrath being turned into children of light. And the catalyst for all of this is through the gathering of God's people for his worship. And as we continue through the text, we see that the suffering of the apostles was directly related to their commitment to the gathering of God's people for his worship. And so if we are to be people who are worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ, we must be a people who are committed to the gathering of the church. Well, second, we see that if we want to be worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ, we must obey God rather than men. And we see that in verses 17 through 29. Now, it's not just those who are around Jerusalem who are hearing about the apostles' preaching and teaching, but it is also the Sadducees. It is also the Sanhedrin. We see that the high priests and the Sadducees, they were filled with jealousy. They rose up and arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. The Sadducees inevitably discovered that Peter and John are going against their gag order. The text tells us that they were jealous or they were morally corrupt, zealous ill will. They had a morally corrupt, zealous ill will towards the apostles, and so they arrest them. But this time, it's not just Peter and John who are arrested, but it is the whole uh, group of the apostles. And Luke tells us a little detail. They are sent to prison, but not just any prison. It is a public prison. And what the Sadducees are doing is they are trying to publicly shame the apostles. They swagger into uh, Solomon's portico, and they arrest the 12 publicly, and they put them in this public prison. It's a public event. They're throwing their weight around, attempting to publicly shame the apostles and show everyone who really was in charge. It's not these 12 men. It is the Sadducees. It is the Sanhedrin. Now, you remember who the Sadducees are. They were the theological liberals of the day. They denied anything supernatural. They denied the concept of the resurrection. They rejected miracles. They did not believe in demons or in angels. And this is what makes the text so ironic and somewhat humorous, you might say. Because even as they're reject or rejecting all of these supernatural things, who are the apostles preaching about? They're preaching about Jesus Christ, who was not dead, who did not remain in the tomb. The tomb was empty. And what was it that they were doing? They were performing miracles through the power of Christ. Something that the Sadducees rejected. And who brought them out of prison? It was an angel. These three things that the Sadducees rejected were being displayed right before their very eyes. Luke is showing us the irony here. And we see that it is indeed an angel who frees them from the prison. An angel comes during the night and opens up the prison and brings them out. And this is one of three instances where a messenger of the Lord frees one of the apostles from a prison. And while this is a miraculous intervention of the Lord, it's not necessarily normative for believers. You can even go through the book of Acts and you'll see that the Lord did not preserve Stephen's life. James was killed by Herod and ultimately Paul was not released from prison But here, the Lord clearly has more work for his apostles to do. They are his witnesses, and they have more people to witness to. And so he brings them out of the prison by sending his angel to supernaturally release them. And look at what the angel tells them to do. He says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. They are told to do what Jesus has already told them to do before his ascension. They are to be his witnesses. Now, earlier in the book of Acts, they are praying for boldness. After Peter and John are first arrested, they pray for boldness. And here, the Lord is answering that request. He does it initially when they pray. If you can go back to uh, the book of Acts, I think chapter 3 or 4, you'll see that after they pray for boldness, there's a great shaking of the home that they are in. The Lord is answering that prayer. And the Lord is answering that prayer again as he reaffirms the commission that he gives them to serve as his witnesses go and preach. And so this is what they do. As soon as the day breaks, they go into the temple and they begin to teach. And notice they don't wait until the middle of the day. They don't wait till siesta hour. They don't wait till lunchtime where maybe the temple won't be so full and won't be so crowded. They go immediately as soon as the doors open to boldly preach the truth, the truth that Jesus saves sinners. And then the scene shifts. We shift from the work of the apostles, the redemption of the apostles, back to the Sanhedrin. And we see the Sanhedrin. They gather together the council, the whole senate of the people of Israel. And they then send one of the officers to go bring the apostles from the prison. The high priest here is very intentional in setting up this public trial to stamp out the growing church of Jesus Christ. No longer was the New Testament church just a tiny little uh, germinating tree, but it was a growing sapling. And the Sadducees wanted to uproot that tree and destroy it. And so they gather the Sanhedrin, and once they're gathered there together, they send for the apostles. And there's a great sense of pomp and hubris and pride as they're doing this. So imagine the embarrassment that they experience as the guard goes to the prison and he finds the prison Empty. And he comes and he reports what he finds to the Sanhedrin. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the door, but no one was inside. Kind of embarrassing, shocking, perplexing. And this is indeed what it was. It was perplexing to the Sadducees. In fact, the text tells us they were greatly perplexed and they were wondering what this would come to. Now, some commentators have suggested that the empty prison here is analogous to the empty tomb. And I'm not sure about any of that, but the point here is clear, that there was some sort of supernatural interference that had caused the apostles to be set free. The guards had not moved. The door was not um, cast off of its hinges. The bars remained on the windows. And they're now faced with the error of their worldview. They're greatly perplexed, and they're considering all of the things that they once believed, and perhaps they're faced with the reality now that everything that they held to, the denial of the supernatural, was now false. At least they were perhaps understanding it to be false. But as they were contemplating the foundations of their worldview, they were spared the introspection by a messenger bursting into the courtroom. And he comes in, and he shouts, and he says, Look! The men who are preaching in the temple who we arrested, they're there again teaching the people. The apostles are doing the same thing that they were arrested for to begin with. And so this time the captain of the temple guard is sent to retrieve them. And we read that the captain brings them not by force because he was afraid the people would stone him. And so he's there and he's having to push his way through the crowd and he's having to request now that the apostles come with him. Not drag them, not force them, but ask them. And so the apostles agree. By their own volition, they walk to the Sadducees to face perhaps death. And so they're brought there before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin give them this charge. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. For all the healings that they had witnessed in the miraculous deliverance of the apostles that they have observed, they still reject Jesus. And notice they can't even use the name of our Savior. They don't even use the name of Jesus. They say of this man. They hated Jesus so much that even his name was a stench to him. There is no repentance. There is simply a concern of the perception of the people. And there's a concern over their retaining power over the people and the people here as the apostles are preaching are starting to see that the blood of Jesus is on the hands of the sadducees is on the hands of the sanhedrin and the sanhedrin are starting to notice this as well and so they're saying you you are telling the people that Jesus blood is on our hands and that's exactly right that is exactly what they are saying and you think about Matthew 27 where Pilate then gives the people of Israel the opportunity to choose Jesus over Barabbas. And they choose a murderer instead, and Pilate is perplexed, and he says, Are you sure? And they say, His blood be on our hands, and the hands of our children. And the Sadducees here are reaping what they sow. And they're demanding that the apostles submit to their gag order. And here is why the apostles were counted worthy to suffer a dishonor. Peter, the spokesman of the apostles, says this, beginning his little sermonette, We must obey God rather than man. Now, this is not a license to reject all human authority. The fifth commandment, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, clearly articulate the requirement to submit to authority. Rather, what's being articulated here is the supremacy of God's authority over man's authority, particularly when the authority of man goes against the authority of God. And while we have yet to be commanded not to teach about Jesus, we may not, not be too far from that happening. There are many things that our pagan society says we must submit to that go against the explicit teachings of Jesus. There are many, but I'll limit my comments to just Three. And the first is, is this, the worldview of transgenderism, or the LGBTQ community. Now, we're in the month of June, so-called Pride Month, and we've seen the, the beverages that many drink are being plastered with this message, or the stores that we shop at. And what we're being told is that a man can be a woman, and that a woman can be a man, And they will demand that you use their preferred pronouns. But out of love for them, let me express that again. Out of love for them and obedience to Christ, we must not yield on this issue. God created man, male and female. And we're seeing in our day no longer an explicit rejection of special revelation, that is the scriptures. But we're also seeing an explicit denial of general revelation that the heavens declare the glory of God. There are certain things in God's created order that reveal truth to us, and that truth is being rejected. We must obey God rather than man. And one of the ways that we do that is preaching the gospel to the lost, is to express Christian love to those who are steeped in this sin, steeped in this worldview. We must call them to repentance. We must show them that Jesus is the Savior of sinners like you and like me. We must obey God rather than man. The second is this. I'm giving you two here in one, but they are very closely related. And it is the worldview of feminism and masculine hyperheadship both inside and outside of the church, there are movements that say one gender is superior to the other. And as you look through history, perhaps you can see real legitimate abuses that have been committed against women, and we're seeing some fabricated issues of inequality as well. But while they are seeking, feminist movements are seeking for so called equality, there has been an overcorrection that says women do not need men, and in fact, women are better than men. Feminism says men have had their day, and it's time for the matriarchy to rule. Now, conversely, in a hyperheadship model, men lord their God given leadership over their wives and treat them not as helpmeets, but as subdued slaves. And inevitably, you're going to see that this bleeds over into how men view women in general. There's a full-out chauvinism that says men are ontologically superior to women. And both are wicked. In both cases, there is a satanic denial of the image of God and the other gender. And we obey God rather than men when we reject both of these paradigms and see that God made the genders not to push one another down, but to complement and to build one another up. The third area that we're seeing in our day where we must obey God rather than man is the cultural peer pressure that we all face. Now, while this may seem perhaps less nefarious than the other two that have been mentioned, it's because of cultural peer pressure that the other two problems exist to begin with. Now, there's a phrase or a, an acronym that began a number of years. Perhaps you've heard it, FOMO fear of missing out, and we all have this fear of missing out. We all want to participate in as much activity as we possibly can, and we're worried that if we don't attend these certain things or participate in these certain events or hold these certain worldviews, maybe we're going to miss out. How many of us have been faced with the choice of participating in some sort of activity that would cause us to miss the gathering of God's people on His day? Or perhaps how many times have you been invited to watch a show or a movie that is full of gross immorality? Or how many times have you been tempted to engage in unethical business or research practices to stay ahead of your working peers? The world will tell you that these things are fine and that you must stop being such a prude. But we are children of God and there are some things that demand we must miss out on. There are some forms of entertainment that you as a Christian should not be entertained by. And there are some practices that you as a citizen of heaven have no business being involved in. You must obey God rather than man. Let me ask this question. Is it possible that you are not worthy to suffer shame because you are not living in a manner worthy of the gospel? Now, the shame the apostles here experienced and they rejoiced in was a physical beating. We ought to rejoice in the social shame that we experience by being faithful to Christ. So we see we're worthy to suffer dishonor when we are committed to the gathering of God's people on the Lord's Day. We see that we are worthy to suffer dishonor when we obey God rather than men And third, we are worthy to suffer dishonor when we boldly proclaim the truth about Christ. We see that in verses 30 through 42. So after Peter has begun his small sermon that is uh, pretty much the same as every other sermon that he's preached to the Sadducees up to this point, he continues, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. His words are consistent with what they've already told this court the first time that Peter and John were arrested and we see that Jesus was anointed by the Father to accomplish redemption for his people. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees had hung him on a cross or hung him on a tree. And it's a direct reference to Deuteronomy twenty-one, twenty-two: Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. And Paul picks up on this when he talks about Jesus taking that curse for us as he was hung on the tree. He says this in the book of Galatians. And after the humiliation of Christ, the Father exalts him at his right hand. And Peter mentions that it is Jesus who is the leader of the church, not the Sanhedrin. And furthermore, Jesus is the Savior who gives the gift of repentance for his people, to his people. Jesus accomplishes redemption and makes forgiveness possible. And he goes on and he says that they are there to serve as witnesses to the death and resurrection of Christ. Not only were they witnesses to this fact, but they are witnesses testifying against the men, the very men that they're standing in front of who condemned Jesus to die on that cross. And not only are they witnesses against the Sanhedrin here, They are also witnesses against you and me, who though we were not in the court of the Sanhedrins, though we did not give Jesus over to the Roman authorities to be crucified, the reason that Jesus was crucified was because of your sin, was because of my sin. Every time the hammer was pounded into that nail, and the nail was driven through the wrists and the feet of Jesus Christ, was because of a sin or multiple sins that you and I have committed. And don't respond like the Sadducees do. We'll see their response in a moment. Our response to that, as we are witnessed against for the sins that we've committed against a holy God, our response ought to be one of repentance, ought to be one of faith, ought to be turning from our sin and turning to the Lord Jesus who gives the gift of repentance. But that's not how the Sadducees respond. They respond with anger and murderous hate. The text tells us when they heard these things, they were enraged and wanted to kill the apostles. And hearing is not just the audible sounds going into their ears, but rather it carries with it the idea of comprehension and understanding. They knew the apostles were buckling down on the fact that the Sadducees were responsible for the death of the anointed Christ. And all decorum gets thrown out the window as the Sadducees fall into this frenzy of murderous hate. And they're about to kill the apostles, perhaps through stoning or some other sentence of death, when this man stands up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher held in honor by the people. He stands up, and he puts his hands out, we can imagine, to try and calm the Sadducees down, and he sends the 12 out so that they can deliberate without the 12 overhearing. And he gives them some advice. Gamaliel brings up two other men that they've seen in their lifetime kind of rise up and cause a revolt against the Sadducees or against the Roman authorities. He mentions Thaddeus and and Judas. And we don't know much about them, but what we do know is that they caused some sort of revolt. They got some form of gathering of men, 400 to 500. And they were quite the thorn in the side of the leaders of the day. But we see that they died, that they were killed, and that their movement came to nothing. And so Gamaliel is saying, we've seen that happen twice in our day. This is probably just the third instance. Instead of us doing all this big hubabaloo about, you know, killing the apostles or anything like that, just let them do what they're doing. If it's of God, you can't oppose it. If it's of man, you will fail. Now, it seems like good advice, but Gamaliel is, is thoroughly incorrect here. Gamaliel misses the whole point of what's going on here. Gamaliel is rejecting, by what he's saying, the fact that the tomb is empty. He's rejecting the miracles that the apostles are performing through Jesus Christ. He's rejecting the conversion of thousands and thousands of people out of their sin and into the light. And he's being thoroughly pragmatic here. Now, it may sound like good advice... If it's of man, it's going to fail. If it's of God, it's not. And there are elements of truth to that. But his presupposition is that if it's of man, it's going to fail in his lifetime. And there are plenty of movements by men that began long before you and I were ever born. And they continue to this day. And they will continue unless the Lord does some providential work to either stamp it out or return again. It's not sound advice. It's not something we would want to replicate today. But the Lord uses this man and his bad advice to preserve his saints. We see that the Sadducees seem somewhat persuaded by Gamaliel's advice. And so they bring the apostles back in. They charge them not to teach in the name of Jesus. They unceremoniously beat them, and then they let them go. Do you see the escalation of persecution that's taking place in the book of Acts? First, when Peter and John were arrested, there were just simple threats. Now the whole 12 are arrested, and there are beatings. You're going to see, if you continue to read the book of Acts in chapter 7, Stephen is stoned and killed, James is murdered, the church is scattered. But the Lord will not be stopped by the work of men, even in their beatings here. Now, as unpleasant as being punched in the face might sound, it was much worse. Likely, the beating that they experienced here was that of being whipped 40 times minus one. You were beat on the back. Your skin was ripped open. Many people died from these lashes because sometimes their organs were pierced. So it's not as if the apostles were beaten and then they just walked out. Rather, they hobbled out or maybe even they crawled out, or they carried one another arm in arm as they limped away from the Sanhedrin, as they were beat and publicly shamed for preaching Jesus Christ. And that does not cause them to stop. Rather, the text tells us they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, because they boldly proclaimed Jesus Christ. And counted all joy, when you face trials of various kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance, when it's had its full effect, leads to perfection. We saw or we've heard that they've been praying for a boldness earlier in the book of Acts, and now the Lord continues to answer that prayer by giving them the opportunity to be bold. And they suffer dishonor. Not only did they suffer, but as we see, they rejoiced in their suffering. And the question we have to ask is why? Why did they rejoice in their suffering? Well, there are four reasons why. We'll go through them and then we'll close. The first reason that they rejoice because of their suffering was in response to their obedience to God. They were called to be witnesses, they obeyed, and they suffered for it. They suffer because of their obedience. The world will not praise you for your holiness. More than likely, the more obedient you are to Christ, the more the world will hate you. The suffering of the apostles was their badge of honor, indicating their faithfulness to their obedience to Christ. And so they rejoiced. And so we ought to also rejoice when we face any type of persecution, physical or social. We rejoice because we obey. Second, they rejoiced because the Lord had protected them. They were released from prison and preserved from death. Now, with the exception of the Apostle John, they will all die a martyr's death. But they rejoice in the fact that they, that they were preserved to continue to serve as witnesses to the leader and savior of sinners. And because of their protection, you and I are able to hear the gospel preached today. Because the Lord used them, many of them, to write parts of the New Testament, or he used them in the scattering of his people to preach the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. As they go out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, the gospel is proclaimed. And the gospel trickles down generation after generation after generation until it's preached to you this evening. And if you have not yet experienced the wonderful grace of forgiveness... Today is the day of salvation. The Lord preserves his apostles for you to hear the gospel tonight. Tonight is the day for you to cast off your sin, to put your faith and trust in Christ, repent of your sins, and turn to him. The Lord has preserved your life up to this point as well. Rejoice and witness. Third, they rejoice because they were walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus suffered. Jesus was persecuted. A servant is not greater than their master. And they were able to suffer as Jesus suffered. And when you face suffering, rejoice because you are able to model Jesus to those who may be persecuting you. Fourth and finally, they rejoice because their suffering was for Jesus, they knew who they were suffering for. And one of the great potential joys that a pregnant woman has is the suffering of pregnancy. There is a great suffering, but there's joy in knowing why you're suffering or who you are suffering for. Now, oftentimes, we do not know why we are suffering, whether it's persecution from the world or hard providential circumstances that the Lord brings into our lives. We know that our suffering is for our Savior. It is for Jesus Christ. When we are persecuted for proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ, we can rejoice knowing that our suffering is for his glory and for our good. And so as they faced this persecution, as they faced this beating, they didn't stop. The text ends with them doing exactly what they did to begin with, going to the temple and preaching Jesus And not staying at the temple, but going door to door, house to house, to proclaim salvation is in Christ. They were worthy to suffer a dishonor. You, as God's people, are to be an oxymoron. You are to be worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ. By being committed to the gathering of his people. By obeying God rather than men. And by boldly proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, for your truth. We thank you that you are the leader and savior of sinners. We thank you that we have experienced that grace upon grace as we have been forgiven of our sins, as we have been made righteous and holy. Lord, we do pray for those who may not yet have experienced that grace, that today would be the day of their conversion. Lord, we pray that as you perhaps providentially orchestrate persecution to befall us that we would be people who are worthy to suffer dishonor that we are worthy to suffer shame for your name Lord we pray that as you might even be preparing us for that that you would be giving us a great love for your truth, a great love for your lost Lord that you would be at work in us as we serve as witnesses to the risen Savior we pray all this in your son's name Amen.